Welcome to the New Books Network. War between Israel and Hamas rages since Hamas's gruesome attacks on Israeli civilians on October 7, 2023, which were the most deadly Israel since its foundation in 1948. Hamas is affiliated with Iran and with Hezbollah in the so-called axis of resistance. And these ties raise questions about whether the war will widen into a regional conflict or even beyond. As I speak, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on his way to Tel Aviv to try to persuade the Israelis to undertake so-called humanitarian pauses and to allow aid into the Gaza Strip, where Desperate Palestinians suffer severe shortages shortages of food, water, medicine, and fuel. Meanwhile, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah has just broken his silence on the war since before the initial Hamas attacks. Will Hezbollah, which is based primarily in Lebanon, intervene in the war with potentially cascading consequences? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And we're fortunate to have with us today Colin Clark, who is director of research at the SUFAN Group, which is a security consulting organization. Prior to joining the Sufan Group, Clark was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University and a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, where he spent a decade researching terrorism, insurgency, and criminal networks. At RAND, Clark led studies on ISIS financing, the future of terrorism and international crime, transnational crime, and lessons learned from all insurgencies since the end of World War II. His assessment of the threat of a widening war in the Middle East appeared in a New York Times op-ed a week or so ago. Thank you for joining us today, Colin Clark. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you with us. So uh, we just finished listening to uh, Hassan Nasrallah of Hezbollah, uh, he's just finished giving a speech that's widely seen as, you know, a, sort of an indication of Hezbollah's plans with regard to the Israel-Hamas war, in which it's mainly stayed out of the uh, conflict so far. So based on his speech, how do you assess what Hezbollah is likely to do next? Yeah, I mean, it kind of was exactly what I was expecting from him. A lot of tough talk, a lot of chest thumping and and fiery rhetoric. Uh, without actually committing Hezbollah definitively to further action. I, I think, you know, much like Iran, Hezbollah has perfected the art of walking right up to the line without crossing it and, uh, you know, engendering significant blowback. So I think they've really figured out, uh, you know, it's almost like an algorithm in a sense that they almost always know what buttons to push without having a, a massive response that follows. It's kind of, you know, if you think of like, strategic pinpricks, right? And and kind of this uh, death by a thousand paper cuts. That's the way that they operate. That's the way that Iranian proxies operate. My fear is that, you know, with so much U.S. military hardware in the region, all it takes is one miscalculation, one proxy group to go rogue, 
uh, and and you know we're in on the verge of a, a a very serious regional conflagration. This is not a minor skirmish like we've seen in the past. There's a lot of assets in the region, uh, and everybody's got their fingers on the trigger. Well, that sounds worrisome indeed, and certainly your New York Times op-ed struck me anyway as rather very worried about the possible widening. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you see that potentially happening. You know, maybe it's just a miscalculation by somebody or trigger-happy, you know, proxy party of some sort. Um, you know, what do you think is going to happen and what do you think is the kind of strategic posture of the United States in all this? Yeah. So with the U.S. moving in two carrier strike groups, moving in a Fed missile battery, moving in Patriots, uh, having, you know, thousands of troops on standby. Initially, I, I think the first layer to that is deterrence, right? It's a clear shot across the bow to Tehran of saying you need to stay on the sidelines here. Uh, we mean business. It's you know, unequivocal that the United States is very serious about uh, backing up Israel and engaging in conflict if necessary. I, I don't think Washington wants to go there, uh, but stands by ready and prepared to do so. The second part is force protection, right? And so there's already been more than two dozen attacks by Iraqi Shia militia, uh, what we call Hashd al-Shabi, uh, various kind of Iranian proxy groups like Kataib, Hezbollah, and, and others against U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria. We've had reports of uh, multiple U.S. troops, service members that have suffered traumatic brain injuries uh, from that. And so to me, that's something to keep an eye on, right? Because there's only so much the U.S. is going to tolerate with its troops being um, repeatedly attacked before the U.S. strikes back, right? And uh, we can go back to the Trump administration where we were getting in this tit for tat uh, with with the Iraqi Shia militias. And before you knew it, uh, the U.S. killed Qasem Soleimani. So uh, exquisite capabilities on the U.S. side. Uh, and I think that so that that's a to me, it's a clear trigger uh, or, or a clear tripwire. You've got other actors in the region, too. You've got the Houthis in Yemen. They've been um, popping off missiles uh, toward Israel. They've all been kind of intercepted. Um, my sense is that the the threat from the Houthis is probably closer to to Yemen um, in, in shipping lanes off the coast. And then you've got Lebanese Hezbollah, which is the the real wild card here. Uh, I think you know if we if we look at Hamas's improved capabilities and what they were able to do on October seventh, uh, what Hezbollah brings to the table dwarfs that. Right, we're talking about, in my opinion, the most complete, capable, non-state armed group in the world, and and they have been for some time. Right, so if uh, even going back to nine eleven, we were we were talking about Al Qaeda. Um, I always thought. And, and this might have even been a quote from from Dick Armitage, right? If Al Qaeda is the B team, Hezbollah is the A team, um, and this is uh, a group that has been around since the early 1980s, uh, receives hundreds of millions of dollars from Iran each year. They're battle hardened, they're experienced, uh, they have high tech weaponry, uh, very very capable, probably more capable than than many nation state militaries. Uh, so if Hezbollah does decide to get into the fray fully it completely changes the equation of this conflict. And, and that's a major concern, I think, of, of mine. And, and clearly, it's something on the minds of uh, U.S. policymakers as well. So uh, you've just mentioned Iran. And I, I wonder if you could s- describe a little bit, you know, how we should think about the relationships sure. between Iran and these other groups. 
Yeah, so Iran calls it the axis of resistance. And listening to Nasrallah's speech, he made several uh, references to to this axis of resistance. It's basically, you know, the core of Iranian foreign and security policy. And uh, at the Sufan Center, uh, we had a, a report on this back in 2019 uh, called Iran's Playbook, right, where we kind of laid out how Iran operates in the region. They do through they do so through these kind of um, front groups, these proxy groups, because it gives them, you know, people call it plausible deniability. I like to call it implausible deniability because we all know that it's Iran behind them. Uh, and much of the training and the equipment and the the, the important part here, I'd, I'd like to focus on tacit knowledge transfer, right? So this isn't directions that are being conveyed through the internet. This is hands-on training and there's no substitute for that. That's provided by uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, IRGCQF. I mentioned Qasem Soleimani um, a short while ago. He was the leader of IRGC Quds Force, was thought to be the most capable leader uh, that it's had in some time. Um, various administrations in the U.S. have flip-flopped on whether it's a foreign terrorist organization or not. Um, but essentially what the Quds Force does is employ a train-the-trainer model. So they go out, they train up these proxy groups. The proxy groups can then train one another. Um, but this is Iran's kind of elite vanguard that they use to act throughout the region. Um, they they see these borders on the map as just that, just uh, you know, lines drawn there. They they look at the region as the entire region as as their own sandbox. Fascinating. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that larger picture. I mean, uh, you know, I'm curious, I'm puzzled, you know, why did it, uh, Hamas do this at the particular moment that it did it? And why did it do it with such brutality? I mean, I, it, yeah. I'm no expert, of course, but it did seem to me that that was, you know, intentional and an effort to provoke a certain kind of response, which uh, it seems to me in many ways they're getting from Israel for better or worse. So yeah, how, how do so, you, what do you make of the timing and, and aims of Hamas's attacks? So let's start with the second piece of that, which is the brutality. Uh, I mean, this was a savage attack by uh, any definition targeting civilians uh, and, and, you know, really quite heinous and, and barbaric and, bodies that were mutilated, uh, reports of, of rape. Now, there's a lot of people that want to argue over whether babies were beheaded or not, but let's just focus on the fact that babies were killed, and I think that's enough. Whether or not they were beheaded, I, I don't even want to wade into that because it's now become subsumed by disinformation. The fact that babies were killed, to me, is it speaks to the barbarism enough. I think Hamas actually miscalculated here big time. Um, if you heard Benjamin Netanyahu come out, he started you know, soon after the attacks, equating Hamas with ISIS, saying Hamas is ISIS, Hamas is ISIS. And it's catchy and it's a good slogan. It's a good bumper sticker. Um, Hamas isn't ISIS and it's not ISIS for a lot of reasons. And I'm actually writing a piece on that right now. Um, but the fact that Hamas's attack was so barbaric opened the door to that analogy and comparison, and I think is actually quite counterproductive for Hamas's goals. So now let's shift to the first part of that, which is Hamas's objectives. Um a lot of speculation there. We don't quite know um, exactly why Hamas did this. And there's all sorts of hypotheses and conspiracy theories, especially the closer you get to the region, uh, you know, the, the closer you get to some of these conspiracy theories. You know, in, in the piece I wrote for The Times, I I mentioned the timing of this in terms of, you know, we went from uh, a place where people were talking about 
an historic the potential for an historic deal between the Israelis and the Saudis and normalization of the Saudis kind of joining the Abraham Accords, right? Where these kind of normalization deals brokered by the Trump administration with uh, Israel and the UAE, Israel and Bahrain, a handful of other countries, including Morocco, I think Sudan. Uh, and this is essentially detente, right? This is a kind of peace agreement that's largely built on um, economics and trade. Uh, and the Palestinians were sidelined and marginalized in all of this. Uh, and so to me, one of the possible motivations in terms of timing was the Iranians pre preparing Hamas, uh, giving them the equipment, giving them the capabilities to conduct this type of attack that would inevitably draw, you know, a harsh Israeli reaction. And I think, you know, Israel has every right to defend itself. 1,400 uh, of its citizens were killed. We wouldn't expect anything less. Um, I think almost like 9-11, and there's, there, were, there were a lot of 9-11 comparisons too, saying this is Israel's 9-11. The, I think the most apt part of that analogy is the risk in Israel overreacting in the same way the United States did and, and falling right into the trap or the plans of its adversary, right, of getting dragged in to an occupation, to a conflict that's going to set blood and treasure, um, you know, draw the ire of the Arab and Islamic world. Um, and, you know, the, the United States embarked on 20 years where the global war on terrorism or the GWAT, which was terribly named because how do you declare war on a tactic um you know really what we were at war was it with al-qaeda but the goalposts kept moving back right then it was the taliban um we spent 20 years in afghanistan only to replace the taliban with the taliban uh and you know at the same time taking our eye off strategic competitors near peers like china and russia so i think that's part and parcel of this is one to kind of torpedo uh any normalization talks because it makes it far more difficult for the Saudis now to move forward with that. I do think the deal is potentially still on the table. Um, and I think that's almost a whole other podcast interview about the, the details and nuances of that. Um, then there's talk about one of these trade routes that uh, President Biden announced after or on the heels of the G20, which was going to kind of root through um, the Middle East and and very much you know the normalization deal is a linchpin of of that potential trade route, which interestingly cuts out Iran, uh, right? And so we don't know uh, how much of a factor that was, uh, but these are some of the things that um, that could have played a role. And like anything else, it's multifactorial, right? I think you know it was a bit of a perfect storm, um, including in the way that. I don't even think in their wildest dreams Hamas could have seen an attack this successful, right? Everything had to line up perfectly for Hamas. Everything had to line up poorly for Israel. And I think if you played this attack out in a military simulation uh, a thousand times, you might get the outcome you saw only once. Uh, it was really just a perfect storm of factors and variables that led us to where we are. Fascinating. So, I mean, I guess the question in a way that uh, occurs to me now is to say, you know, is Israel winning? I mean, militarily, it seems unambiguous that uh, Israel can subdue uh, Hamas. It can and is leveling much of the Gaza Strip. Uh, but 
you know, the way it's doing that or the fact that it's doing that is, you know, raising, as you just said, uh, much of the uh, the ire of the Islamic and, and Arab world. And so, you know, what does it mean to win? I mean, their strategic yeah. objective is to uh, decapitate or eliminate uh, uh, Hamas. But, you know, as may, various people have pointed out, it's hard to eliminate an ideology. So. Sure. You know, what can they really do? And are they, you know, shooting themselves in the foot by what seems as much like revenge as, you know, war with strategic aims? Very complicated. Uh, I think, you know, when, when I was at RAND, we did a study um, where we looked at 71 insurgencies from the end of World War II to 2009, which was the, the universe. Um, and we kind of pulled through all the different factors and variables uh of of the genesis of the project was um what do counterinsurgent forces that win like what do they do what are their best practices right what are the lessons learned and one of them was they they don't engage in um some of the things that we're seeing now which is uh you know the, the strikes that injure large numbers of civilians, right? This kind of draconian scorched earth response um, that the Israelis are engaging in, um, you know, cutting off water, electricity, what we would call collective punishment is usually counterproductive in the long run um, for a lot of these these um, insurgencies. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that Hamas is hiding out among civilians, right? I mean, it's not the Israelis just deciding we're gonna go and, and start killing civilians, um, willy-nilly they're they're going after targets and command and control nodes that have nested themselves among civilian populations right so when we talk about war crimes we have to acknowledge that hamas is deliberately putting palestinian civilians at risk and i have to ask does hamas actually care about the lives of palestinians right people say the israelis don't care um you know and 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 certainly i think uh when it comes to western militaries uh the, you know, the way that the Israelis are going about this is hard to watch when you see images of dead children, right? At the same time, those children are being killed because the targets are, are hiding out amongst them. And so the, the real losers in this are, are Palestinian civilians. Uh, they're caught in the crossfire of a war between a terrorist group and a nation state with a military that's hell bent on revenge. And, and that's understandable, right? So, um, I think Israel is is clearly capable of winning this militarily in terms of, you know, if we define that as inflicting damage, more damage on the adversary, but they're definitely going to lose in the information space, right? And in 2023, most wars are decided in the information environment. And I'm not sure the Israelis take, take consideration of that. Um, and part of that, and I have many Israeli friends, including, you know, friends that have served in uh, the IDF, who have said a long time ago, uh, the decision was that no matter what Israel does, the international community's going to look upon it um, harshly. And so they've stopped attempting to win over international public opinion, and they're mostly focused on domestic, right? They don't really care what people abroad think, they just care what their domestic population thinks. But even that is is no longer unified because of uh, Netanyahu. I think he's been extremely divisive. Uh, he said to people, essentially, you know, his his kind of slogan was, I, you may not like me, right? You may not like my policies, but I'll keep you safe. 
and and now that's gone right now that luster is gone so what is he, what does he bring to the table um and there was a piece in uh in foreign affairs recently where uh Amiya alone and some others the former uh, director of Shin Bet said not Netanyahu's got to go not after the war he's got to go now he's not capable of leading the country during this conflict and he's certainly not suitable to be the leader of this country after this attack happened on his watch and i wrote a piece for our monitor um, a few weeks ago where i kind of broke down the israeli intelligence failure um, and look a lot of this was well known i mean if you watch the protests that were taking place in israel in the lead up to this event right they were all based on Netanyahu's power grab, his his attempting to kind of grab the reins of uh, the Supreme Court and the judiciary, right? Very selfish, self-centered. It was about helping himself stay out of this uh, this corruption charge. Well, there was interviews with IDF reservists and others on the streets who were out there protesting, saying this is negatively impacting military readiness. Uh, there was a story by Mark Mazzetti and some others in the Times that really got into the details here. People were coming to Netanyahu saying there's, you know, the lights are flashing red and he didn't want to hear it. Right. And so I think a lot of the blame for the initial October 7th attack clearly lies with him. Um, the question now is, you know, is he attempting to kind of salvage his legacy by, by destroying Hamas? And I think, I mean, that's something we can talk about because I don't think it's actually possible to destroy Hamas. And I think the pursuit of that is likely to be highly counterproductive um, for the Israelis. Right. I mean, it seems to me there's a lot of criticism within Israel. It's not, you know, anti-Semites and Israel haters around the world. It's within Israel. You know, Bibi is held responsible for much of what has happened. And, you know, whether he's using the situation to try to maintain his longevity, you know, one could argue about, but seems certainly like a possibility. But I guess I'm curious you know, what would you say about Hamas and its kind of place in the Palestinian political universe? Uh, you know, one hears similarly a great deal of critical commentary on Hamas as a self-interested party, as, uh, you know, not concerned really about the Palestinian people, those kinds of things. And now it has brought, you know, death and destruction on a lot of Palestinians. So, you know, how are they going to come out of this, even if, you know, some people in the in that region think that they did a great thing by, you know, what they did on October 7th? Yeah, it's going to be very difficult, right? I mean, I'll I'll skip ahead to how I think this conflict could end, um, and 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 I think the only way that it actually ends, right, and that we're not back at this in six, twelve, eighteen months, is a political settlement. I mean, even the Israelis, I think, have come around to that uh, realization that this is only going to end with the Palestinians getting a state. Now there are people who are saying that can't be the outcome of this because it then just encourages terrorists and incentivizes them, right? That if you launch an attack, you're going to get what you want. Um, but they've been denied this state. It's a very complex situation, right? I'm trying to talk to some lay people about this and, you know, how far do we go back? Do we go back to, you know, uh, the first intifada? Do we go back to, you know, 1967, 1948? Like where, where can we go back? It's, it's not as black and white as many would like it to be even compared to Russia, Ukraine, right? Which there was a little bit clearer, at least in my mind of, um, you know, good guys and bad guys, quote unquote, 
and I'm not suggesting at all that Hamas isn't a bad actor here. It's a terrorist group that attacks civilians, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, why do people join Hamas, right? And I've studied a lot about what motivates people to join violent non-state actor groups. And 2 million people living in a densely populated area, if you look at the demographics, extremely young, right? Youth bulge, massive unemployment. That's a that's a petri dish for for radicalization, right? And for people joining these groups. So, uh, moreover, Netanyahu was trying to play off the Hamas with Palestinian Authority, right? Divide and conquer, back and forth, uh, and so that that's part of it. So, in any kind of future Palestinian state. As unpalatable as it might seem, and it's especially unpalatable right now, Hamas is likely going to have some some governing role. Uh, you know, it's not just going to be the West Bankers. It's not just going to be uh, Mahmoud Abbas and and, and his crew. Um, when we look at political solutions that are durable, they often include some of the most unsavory actors, right? Otherwise, those actors go back to the field and they continue fighting. Uh, you know, even still, if Hamas were to agree to be part of some kind of future Palestinian state, you're likely going to have a fraction of the group that splinters off, right? Uh, the hardliners that say, we'll never agree to a deal. Because if you look at Hamas's charter, much of it is about the destruction of Israel, right? And there are people that are truly committed to that. They actually don't care about a Palestinian state. We saw this with the IRA in Northern Ireland, right? With the transformation of the IRA, the shift in resources to Sinn Féin, which is the political party, Folks that were former IRA commanders like Jerry uh, Adams and Martin McGinnis then becoming part of the formal government um, in Northern Ireland. Now, a lot of hardliners didn't like that, so they broke off. You had continuity IRA, you had the real IRA, right? You had these splinter groups, and that's a normal part of you know when terrorist organizations transform into political parties. It's actually what I wrote my my PhD dissertation on, so I know a little bit about it. Uh, we've seen similar evolutions in South Africa uh, with the African National Congress, right? Before he was known as uh, a peacemaker, Nelson Mandela was an insurgent, for lack of a better term. So, uh, and I would say, look at the history of Israel, right? In, 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 uh, against the British, right? So uh, the Stern Gang, uh, all these other, you know, um, groups, uh that got their start that then became politicians. So it's uh, there's precedent for this. Um, nobody wants to talk about rewarding Hamas at the moment. Um, but if we are going to be realistic about a future Palestinian state, it's likely that some kind of Gaza or Hamas representation is going to be necessary for that to be viable going forward. Interesting. So maybe as a last question, uh, I'd ask you, you know, how long do you think this is going to take to play out? I mean, it doesn't look good at the moment, but there are more discussions about, you know, possible deals and continue continuation of normalization than, uh, you know, that has surprised me. So, um, you know, how is this going to how long is this going to take to play out? And and, uh, you know, sort of how does it relate to other conflicts in the world, particularly Ukraine? Yeah, it's, it's really anybody's guess how how long this is going to uh, to take to play out. Uh, I'm already surprised at, you know, typically when these conflicts flare up, uh, there's, you know, about a week's worth of media attention and then things fade. We're now moving on a month and actually it's getting more attention than ever. And that just kind of gives you a sense of um, 
how important this particular conflict is. I mean, I go back to grad school when I had a professor that asked, who in here wants to be a diplomat? Who wants to work for the State Department? And I'd say maybe a quarter of the class, maybe a little bit more, raised their hands. And he said, I urge you to go to the Israeli-Palestinian file or portfolio. And somebody said, well, why, professor? And he said, well, the conflict's never going to end, so you'll have lifelong employment. You know, and a couple of people chuckled. And and looking back on it, I, I'm not sure that he was joking, right? Uh, so I don't know how long this will take to, to be resolved. Um, again, there's the military part. There's the diplomatic part. I think the hostages complicate this further. Um, you know, there's so many different vectors here. Uh, the answer is it's it's likely to take a really long time. Um, and I don't think the outcome is going to be satisfactory for any of the sides. But again, that's typically how you get a durable solution, right? If everybody gets what they want, if, if one side gets everything they want and another doesn't, well, you're going to be kind of back in the situation sooner rather than later. So um, I just think, you know, this, we, we talk all the time about the international community, right? I, I mean, I guess I've never been more cynical about the international community than I am now. What does that mean? Who's coming to the table, uh, right? Who are the great powers and great power competition? Um, you know, Russia certainly shouldn't be considered in that, and they're waging their own war of aggression in Ukraine. Um you know, the Chinese got a lot of credit for brokering a quote-unquote rapprochement between the Saudis and the Iranians a few months ago. Well, how's that holding up, uh, right? The region's back in, in conflict. And the U.S. frankly can't be trusted as an honest broker because of overt support to one side in the conflict, which is Israel. So who steps in here, right, and, and kind of acts as a mediator? I think even the U.N. itself lacks a lot of credibility. Um, you know, Gutierrez came out and said, the attack can't be viewed in a vacuum, right? It, what he meant was that this is a very uh, complicated and, and, and nuanced issue, but the way that he said it, the timing, um, and people will hear what they want to hear, uh, was was not, uh, you know, was not received warmly, especially in, in Israel. So I don't see a clear broker here. I mean, people have talked about Turkey and, and some others, uh, but but who who is objective enough and who doesn't have a dog in the fight to the point where they'd be trusted by both sides to uh, to move this forward, and I don't see anybody waiting in the wings to do that. Um, so I'm 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 pretty pessimistic about the outcome of of this. Even when the fighting stops, I don't see a clear political resolution um, forthcoming. Well, that's a sad kind of bottom line, but unfortunately, I tend to agree with you. I think this is going to take a long time and it's going to bleed in a way into the previous conflicts that you mentioned, you know, 1967, 1948, and it's just going to continue to seem like it just is intractable. And that's sad for the people in the region, certainly. So what's the any- thing they say about the Middle East? Things can uh, things can always get worse before they get worse. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that, but alas, uh, sounds like it makes some sense. So that's it for today's episode. I want to thank Colin Clark of the Sufan Group for sharing his insights on the war between Israel and Hamas. Remember to su- subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank uh, Osvaldo Mina Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. 
This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.